Welcome to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis is all about our city as an urban place, including its neighborhoods, buildings, pathways, and parks, as well as the people who shape it. Join us each week as community leaders and commentators talk with me about our shared built environment. everybody. Welcome back to Memphis Metropolis on 91.7 WYXR here in Memphis. And I'm Emily, the host. So today we've got a second one of our series of neighborhood spotlights. And I am also excited because this is my first field visit. You know, it's on the radio, so you might not know the difference, but um, I'm actually out in the Aussie Ball neighborhood, and I'm with Seth Harkins, who's the executive director of the Aussie Ball Development Corporation. So welcome, Seth. Thank you, Emily. This is this is a big treat. It's great to have a visitor. Don't get a lot of those these right. days. So well, plus, it's, it. I know it's an honor to be <laughs> on Memphis Metropolis, right? Absolutely. So let's talk. Got a, a number of things. So so we'll talk in a minute about where we are, which is in the Rogers Store, which is a project of yours. We'll talk about that in a minute. But first, let's just talk about Aussie Ball. I think of Aussie Ball as sort of on the south end of South Memphis, but that just could be sort of in my mind. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so locate us where Aussie Ball is, and then tell us a little bit about you know, the history of the neighborhood, you know, how long it's been around and known as that, if you know. I'm just really interested in sort of neighborhood history and all that kind of thing. Sure, sure. So I guess geographically, uh, we'll start there. We're in between Airways and Elvis Presley. So we're not, not far at all from the airport. We're just off the Airways exit um, going down south of the 240 loop. So Airways and Elvis Presley are our east and west boundaries, and then the 240 loop to the south, and then Ball Road to the north. So those are our, our physical boundaries um, at this point. Uh, so that's an area that has about 4,500 residents, and uh, it's almost completely residential. And then it's it's bounded on the north. Another important facet of our community here is the Defense Depot. So if you're driving down airways, you see the Kellogg's plant, and then you see the, uh, the Barnhart uh, corporate office and then behind all of that is what used to be military property and now it's kind of chopped up in a different small warehouse building you're talking about the defense depot that's right mm-hmm. okay yeah so that's a that's an important i guess geographic landmark um, it's affected a lot of the health and well-being of the community it was a really stable employment hub and now it's it's not really it's a lot of just sort of dead drop storage space um, for smaller companies now. So You not, mean the, 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 defense the defense depot? It's a, con- mm-hmm. a conglomeration of companies, I guess. Right, right. And there's not a lot of very active employment there uh, compared to the density of, of employment that you would have had uh, before the 90s. So um, so we've had some loss of employment there, but, but a lot of retired people in the community that, that had great, made a great living there. Um, well, did the neighborhood grow up around, I mean, I think of, you know, of course, New Chicago is much older, but really a neighborhood that grew up around mm-hmm. um, big employment centers, which in the case of New Chicago was, you know, Firestone International Harvester. Mm-hmm. How, I mean, I guess two-part question, when was, when was the, re- when were the, the residential areas built right. and did they kind of grow up to, or were they developed to, to, to mm-hmm. uh, provide housing for people who worked at the Defense Depot and mm-hmm. other places? Right, so the, the depot is definitely a, a driver for that. There's also a, a major post office facility, uh, a sorting center off of Elvis Presley that's near here. So the house that I live in um, is about a mile from here and it's closer to that post office facility. So there were, there were a lot of homes built for um, blue collar families in the 40s and 50s. Um, and so that's, that's the part of the neighborhood that I live in. Uh, where we're sitting now, this building has been here since 47, um, but it was on Alsey Road, which was a you know, gravel road that was in the county. Um, and really, then, I guess before suburban sprawl. That yes, definitely. So there's there's some remnants of that kind of fabric of the neighborhood on Alsey Road and Manchester and a couple of the other through streets that cut through the neighborhood. So this is kind of out in the country. Yes, I mean yeah. it's inside the loop now. It's sort of that, right. That's so interesting. So there's a, a family down the street here that were they were sharecroppers off of Perry Road, and then um, 
the grandfather went to fight in World War One, and he came back from World War One, and with his pay, he bought land on Alsea Road, which was the county. And then later, when his kids came of age, they bought a piece of land across the street, which was the city, so that their kids could go to the city schools, um, which would have been Hamilton High School. So they bought a lot across the street. Back in order when to people do that. didn't move out of the city for schools. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's a completely backward story from the way we think about it today. So I'm quite, did the ex- did the 240, did that, mm-hmm. um, you know, eliminate part of the neighborhood? Or I'm just thinking right. about this. You think about expressways sometimes, right. you know, dividing neighborhoods. But, of course, it's, the other side is a long ways away now. So right. do you know? So 240 was cut in a little bit before most of the homes were built in our immediate area, right? So the Rogers Shore building where, where we're sitting now, where my office is, um, is surrounded by homes that were mostly built in the early 60s until the early 70s. And they were built for college-educated black families, a lot of you know, two-income, no kids that, that raised families here. Um, those children now are in their 50s and 60s. They're kind of starting to look to retirement, and I'm trying to convince all of them to move back. Uh, so that's, that's where a lot of the housing stock came from now that's still in really good condition. And then those original homeowners are in their 80s or 90s or they've passed away. So a little bit west of here where you live is the houses are sort of 40s, 50s, and mm-hmm. then they're a little newer here. That's right. So that's actually a great sort of segue to my next question, which is like, who lives here now? Mm-hmm. Um, is it, I mean, you've, you've talked about retirees, older people. I mean, who else is also apartments? And mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. it uh, mostly homeowners? Is it a mix? What's your... What's the sort of, what's the answer, like what's about Aussie Ball from that perspective? Yes, okay. So I guess some interesting things now, so if you move into the late 70s, then you have some multifamily development. Um, One is is 260 units, it's fully occupied waiting list, subsidized housing. Um, Another is unoccupied, 50 units. Another is about half occupied, 90 units. Um, so those being built in the 70s, 80s, and then being in different states of occupancy since that time, um, that's where a lot of our lower income neighbors are there or they're in some of the older housing stock. Typically, that's that's kind of how it's set up. There's also a, a trailer park that's right on the very corner of our neighborhood boundary um, that's next to what used to be the Clementine Apartments, which is still is also sitting vacant. Um, but there's a Hispanic trailer park right there. I didn't know. I know Hispanic about Clementine, Church. but I did not know that um, that there was a trailer park. Mm-hmm. So there's a. It's a really interesting. I mean, we really run the gamut of multifamily all the way up to you know, 2,800 square foot single family homes on a half acre lot um, that have been here for decades. So, it's it's really. I love it for that reason. It's something new every day, and you're always meeting people with, from different different backgrounds. Um, and it's been it, and but it sounds like there are still homeowners. Yes, yes. So I think the the county percentage for ownership versus rentership is is fifty five percent owners, and we're at forty five percent owners. And when you include all that multifamily, that means the rest of our single family homes are still majority uh, owner occupied. Now there's a lot. It's really hard to to count those specifically. You know, we, out of 1,300 parcels, we're looking at 950, 940 that are owner-occupied. Um, so we would like to see that number continue to go up. It's also re- always really, talk to Austin Harrison about this a lot. You, you can just never really tell uh, unless you go and knock on the door and talk to the family to see, do they actually uh, own the home that they're living in or are they renting from a cousin under the table or something like that? So it's just hard so, to tell. So another... In other words, things you might think are home ownership units, as it were, right? Um, sometimes are really not. They're still That's owned right. by the family, mm-hmm. but the person living there isn't the owner. That's mm-hmm. interesting. So I guess like a lot of neighborhoods, and I have spent some time here, although not lately, you do have some vacancy and some blight. Yes. So Alsea Road is sort of the main thoroughfare through the community. You know, whether you rent or own or you're coming back to take care of your grandmother or whatever, everybody sort of knows and drives on Alsi. So that's where the, the big elementary school um, that the county just opened this year, it's a massive project. It, it's on Alsi Road, you know, so the, it's, it's really kind of the, the major thoroughfare community facing traffic is Alsi. So, so Alsi Elementary, that's what I drove by. That's right. So I, but so so it didn't close. I thought it had closed. It didn't. So the the former school there, 
Um, it's a 10 acre site. The former elementary school was built for a capacity of, I think about 300 students. Um, the new school's capacity is closer to 1200 students. So it's just a, it's a completely. So they I mean, went from almost closing a small school yes. to reinvesting and building a much bigger school. So I guess it's, right. it's kind of a, more of a magnet for other neighborhoods. So that's great actually. Yes, so we, we worked really hard and even some of my predecessors and a lot of the community leaders here uh, worked really hard going before the you know county commission, school board leaders, um, lots of different organizations to advocate for that school to be located here on the side of the old Alsea Elementary. Um, and unfortunately that means that two of our neighboring school zones, they lost their elementary schools at Magnolia and Chargine. So we're, we're kind of on the corner of that much larger school zone now and so you know, there's lots of questions still about, you know, is this school zone the right boundary for ALSI? But that's, that's another question. That's really, uh, that's really interesting. I, I don't follow the school system that much, but I did not know about that. So what other, we talked about, um, of course, the Defense Depot, but what are some of the other, you know, major institutions um, in the neighborhood mm -hmm. besides the school and besides the Defense Depot? Right, so um, another sort of ministry partner that we have, the flagship location for Memphis Athletic Ministries is here on Ball Road. So, you know, maybe some of your listeners have brought their kids here to play in a basketball tournament right. or something like that, or right. um, volunteer for something that, that's happened at MAM. What about Barnhart? Is that technically in your neighborhood? Yes, so so Barnhart Crane and Rigging has been a great volunteer partner for us. Uh, we've worked on just kind of building up the relationship between them and community members. Um, doing volunteer projects at some of the neighboring houses right there on Ball Road, working to take a big tree out of a backyard that fell in a storm and some things like that. It's good to have a crane uh, partner for that. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's some big saws and a crane. You can get a lot of stuff done. There's there's also just, I guess, kind of the institution of uh, Elvis Presley Boulevard, Bellevue Boulevard. Um, there's, there's so many businesses, uh, little mom and pop shops that have lived and died on Bellevue and Elvis Presley. Um, and so we're you know that's our boundary street we kind of share that boundary with the prospect park neighborhood and some other part mallory heights elliston heights um, so there are a lot of smaller neighborhoods that we all kind of share elvis presley as a major thoroughfare connecting whitehaven up to soulsville and other parts of south memphis so does Alsea connect like if i turned right on mm -hmm. Alsea mm -hmm. and kept going i would hit elvis presley that's right so that that intersection is the anchor intersection for memphis 3.0 for our area. Right? That's the closest for, anchor. That's right. Okay, mm -hmm. yeah, John Cena was on Memphis Metropolis last week sort mm -hmm. of talking about looking back over the first year of Memphis 3.0. We talked a little bit about the anchor strategy. Yes. So that's the, okay, that makes sense. And how far is that from here? Like right. a mile or two? It's a mile and a half, right? Not not quite. Right. Um, and okay. Then it, yeah, what's interesting about that is um, since then one of those corner lots on that intersection was purchased by a you know major national gas station chain. The other one's a Family Dollar and the other one's a Mapco that's been there for a long time. And then the leaves the fourth one, uh, which was a laundromat. So you have uh, this intersection, uh, which is very meaningful for the community. Everybody drives through it. You know, there's always pedestrian traffic there. Um, but those corner institutions, just they're not what you think of as kind of your uh, your key players for building the fabric of a community. Right, yes. right. Well, I, I guess it's yeah, it's the it's the nearest node. I right. guess to That's use right. a, I, I just <laughs> I'm bio, I should have brought the jargon bell and rung that on myself because that's that's jargon. But okay, so let's talk about your organization. Sure. Aussie Ball Development Corporation. Tell me a little bit about you know how long it's been around and some of the things that you do. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in the it's it's a I know it's a community development corporation working on this neighborhood, and what the bound and also what the boundaries are if they're if they're different from the boundaries of the Alsi Ball neighborhood. Sure. So the um, I guess the original partnership I, going back to when you interviewed Steve Lockwood, he talked about the nature of a CDC really needs to kind of match the thumbprint of the community that it's working in, um, and so when 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 um, some initial board members were sort of talking about this just as a brainchild, they thought that it might look something like a workforce development organization similar to Advanced Memphis, uh, sort of a well-known Memphis okay. organization. Yeah. Connecting people in the neighborhood with jobs. Right. So job preparedness, you know, um, motivation to work, and then um, 
Chris was the executive director before me, and that's Chris Chris Oliver. Yes, Chris your, Oliver, your predecessor. Right, Chris Oliver was executive director before me. That was his prior work experience was at Advance, but as we got to know people in the community, we found that um, there was more of a focus on the desire for home ownership and maintaining the home ownership. That was really the history, the fabric of of why homes were built here. They were built for black homeowners. And so black ownership has really been kind of at the focus of our organization since then. Um, so we've worked with a few families to, to help them buy their first or maybe their second home if they had to file bankruptcy in the past. Um, so worked through some of those financial issues. That's so interesting. We, we, um, cause you know, that's black home ownership is threatened and that's mm -hmm. a challenge. I, mm -hmm. Not the key, referencing former programs but i did a whole show, we did a whole show in that recently with um amy Schaffline from united housing right, and then right. the executive director of national association of real estate programs because there's a whole national campaign around that so and which is and it's urgent to you know to improve that Right. rate and right. um i've got so five neighbors of, right now that are getting texts from me almost daily like please go take the class that amy and priscilla run at united housing right and it's a great it's a great so yeah, so let fan. me just um before we go we go on um if you're just joining us you're listening to memphis metropolis on wyxr 91.7 fm and i'm talking to seth harkins and we're talking about the Altiball neighborhood, and Seth is director of the Altiball Development Corporation. So that's so you the the community said that this is what they wanted. So so housing kind of became more of a focus for us. And then you know as we as we talk with people, there's um, there's definitely concerns about safety, about the presence of small business. So then you have to ask the question, are we gonna are we gonna try to bring more people under the rooftops here, increase population, increase expendable income to try to attract retail, or are we gonna try to do something with commercial property that's that's near the neighborhood to try to increase sort of the viability of living here, I guess. Um, we really wanna we wanna make sure to take care of people who have been invested here for a long time. Yep. And so we've taken an approach of really trying to work through their networks, um, the people that they know who think highly of this neighborhood already. We're not trying to change the minds of people who th think that they don't want to live in South Memphis because we know there are tons of people who, who love this neighborhood. They remember a teacher or a principal they had from, from their childhood that lived here. So many retired teachers in the community that bought their first house here and many of them still live in it. Um, well, so when you think about it, and of course, I love South Memphis, but the feel of this neighborhood is more suburban mm -hmm. than some other parts of South Memphis that are more urban in feel. So yeah. I can see why that would be appealing for people that want to live, you know, with with the bigger yard. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. um, that's very interesting. So your strategy is to get people who like the neighborhood to bring in their friends and family? That's right. So we, we try to do a lot more of this as as recruitment than as you know selling a product or, or trying to move people through a particular curriculum or, or something like that. Um, we, we developed originally as a, a partnership between two churches, a, a local church of a, a pastor who was raised here in the community and he still owns a house right around the corner from us. Um, and then another church uh, sort of in East Memphis. And so we're, we're working to just build deeper relationships and establish trust with the leaders that are here. Um, so there's, you know, one, one of the neighbors that I really confide in a lot is a, a professor at University of Memphis who teaches nonprofit studies. So she's helped me kind of navigate community relationships a lot. Um, really appreciate her help with that. And then just trying to work through some of the other community leaders that are already have obvious influence over, you know, uh, kind of turning the general opinion of the neighborhood um, towards either what we're doing or helping us gather good feedback. Um, so that's where, you know, we're starting to look more into concerns about safety. We have a, a reimbursement program for some families on Alsey Road that'll help with some uh, security upgrades coming soon, just lighting and security cameras, things like that that they've asked for help with. Um, so we're trying to really just respond to what people are asking for, and safety is kind of a new hit on that list that we're trying to make some moves for. I mean, is is the neighborhood? I mean, I know in a lot of places, you know, some places have a lot of crime. Some places, there's the perception of crime. Yes. And um, is it? 
a little of both or what what are your thoughts about that uh, that's a great that's a great observation i th i think the the perception of crime here is when you drive down alcy road um, you see an, a big empty scary looking apartment complex and you see a bunch of flashing blue lights in front of the other occupied apartment complex and so that does it gives you the the perception that there's a lot of crime now there are two places in the neighborhood that everybody kind of knows this is where all the crime happens. So there's one apartment complex and one corner store where everything sort of goes down. So you can see that, you know, the MPD's CyberWatch reports that we get, we, we see the same pin drops over and over again at those two locations. Um, but in the in the single family residential area, it is it is a very safe part of South Memphis for sure. But you suffer from sort of the gateway perception, I guess. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So some, well, some would say we suffer from it. Others would say that they're, uh, it's what makes us such a, a well-kept secret. <laughs> Nobody wants to come through the front well, door. Well, you know so. what? It's good to be a well-kept secret, <laughs> well-kept secret, but there's limits to that. Yeah, you're right. I mean, you're you, right. you, you want to share that secret with a few other people. Well, That's you know, right. the thing is about the, the neighborhood is just super convenient. Mm hmm um, and I think you can, you know, it's close to the airport, but you can probably get, um, you know, to Midtown or Downtown in 15 minutes right off the expressway. That's right. Are you, I mean, are you, I know some parts of Memphis inside the loop are sort of benefiting some from, you know, people moving in mm -hmm. from, you know, Cordova or is there any of that? Right. So I, I had a friend um, who lives right down the street by the house across the street from his childhood home where his parents were still living. And and he said, this is the house that MJ Edwards is going to come pick me up from when I die. So, we're you know, I want to be here with my wife until until we're done. Um, but they had been living out, uh, in, you know, in a suburban part of Memphis and moved here not only to care for his parents, but to have better access to work and to things that he likes to do. He lives most of his life in Midtown. So. Why would he not want to be here? So he's moved back. That's or, right. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we did. You know, we sent a few volunteers to help do, hang some sheetrock and do a little bit of the rehab on on a house that he bought. Um, but it was a the house that he is in now uh, was originally it was one of the very first homes built in the '60s development where a, a black family could come and pick out a lot and choose a floor plan and say, "I want you to build this house on this lot for my family." Um, and the pastor who built that house that that he's now living in uh, was one of the very first connection points that this developer made uh, in connecting to all these other african-american families mainly through school systems networks of teachers that worked together and were raising their kids together that all told each other about these homes so it sounds like it was back in the day it was kind of everyone knew everyone that's that's a lot of the feedback that we get specifically about this building that we're in um, is it's a place where you would walk by it and buy a stick of gum or you know a piece of penny candy or nickel candy on the way to and from school or you would see your big brother to walk home together he would walk down from Corey middle or um, well that was my so yeah so where that was my next question like where are we and you know, I've been getting emails from you, and it's the all I know is it's the Rogers store. Of course, I'm here now. Right. right. Um, but what was it? And then what did? How did you t undertake it as a project? And then what is it now? Great. Okay. So we, you know, it's a building that I'd been driving by for two or three years, working in the neighborhood. Mr. Rogers, uh, that everybody kind of associates with this space, he he leased the building in the early '70s. He bought the building in the late '70s and ran it up until the early 2000s. Uh, so it was it was his place. So anybody that was kind of raised uh, going to Alcee Elementary or walking up and down Alcee Road in the 70s, 80s, 90s knew him sort of as a, a an extra uncle or... So it was a corner store, I guess. Yes. So he, uh, he was really well known for cutting meat, you know, and selling uh, sandwich meat and sauce and things that you could get at, you know, kind of a sort of a country vibe uh, corner store in the 70s, 80s. Um, so he would, you know, he was really well known for being able to keep an account. If you weren't going to get paid till Friday, you could put something on your account, and uh, kids could come in with a couple dollars and get, you know, a couple, you know, two dollars worth of sliced sandwich meat for lunch and a pack of cigarettes for their grandmother. And Mr. Rogers knew who was who, so right. he was fine with that. So it was a place where everybody kind of knew everybody, um, and that's one of the things that we 
we've gotten a lot of feedback about is that there isn't a place now uh, for for neighborhood memories to kind of be uh, reveled in and cherished and preserved. Um, and when did it close as, uh, when did the Rogers store, the original Rogers store close? Right, so Mr. Rogers in the, in the early 2000s, uh, he went into retirement and started to lease the building to other proprietors. Um, and kind of the general vibe is like a lot of people who grew up coming to Rogers store, once he stopped operating the building, they wouldn't come in anymore, you know. Um, just the, the perception. Well, Mr. Rogers wasn't there. Right. So there there was a, a big hit to just this, the reputation of the building as soon as he stepped away from managing it day to day. Um, so so we, we saw somebody come in and start to make some renovations to the space. We got excited about that, talked with whoever the new tenant was going to be, and then saw that stall out um, in 2018, beginning of 2018. Um, and started sending letters to Mr. Rogers just to talk with him about some... So he's still alive? Yes. So Mr. Rogers was here two weeks ago. Oh, wow. Just to drive by and, and stop in and talk. And it was the first time he got to see the space fully renovated. And it was really, really fun to talk with him about that. Yeah. Um, he's been a, an important part of just... Uh, obviously, not everyone. Not everyone has... you know. This, Does he still own the building? Uh, we, so we purchased the building from him on the last day of 2019... And so almost exactly a year ago, we, we initiated, or we, we signed a contract buying the building from him. Um, he knows he's welcome here all the time. So he, that's great. he'll stop in. That's a great to, story. So what really are you doing fun. here? I mean, I know before we started recording, we were talking about starting a new community initiative in the middle of a pandemic. Right. <laughs> um, but I mean, what I saw from walking in is beautiful. And we'll post some pictures on the, for sure on, social media so people can see what sure. it looks like because it's really beautiful. Well, thank you. Well, the so we, we were taking feedback from neighbors, you know, talking about the sort of this warm feeling that they had about Roger Store and what it was and how kind he was to all of his, his patrons. Um, it was a place where people could bump into their neighbors, just kind of rub elbows with people you hadn't seen in a while. We wanted to try to keep that kind of atmosphere. And so the the things that kept coming up in feedback and surveys and conversations that we'd have was the the existing community association and block clubs in the community, some of which have served just ongoing since these homes were built in the in the 60s. Um, so we, we got a small donation recently from the Orchid Homes Pioneers, uh, which was the, the name of this original housing development was the Orchid Homes development. Wow. Um, and so that, you know, they've had that checking account since the 60s and all paid dues into it together. So... Uh, we're really happy that that they're proud to see this happen sure. you know, at the corner of their their main street down here. So, um, our intention before the pandemic was to be able to use this for those kind of gatherings. Um, some of the best food I've had in this neighborhood was at those block club meetings before the pandemic started. So we're we're hoping that we can do that. You know, the last thing anybody wants to do during a pandemic is a potluck. Um, but right now, you know, that's we're really looking forward to being able to do that again. Yep. I just had my first neighbor call me uh, and tell me that they got their vaccine um, yesterday. And that was a really encouraging moment. Uh, just well, it to looks see like you have sort of, of a small, almost commercial kitchen. Are you going to have cooking classes? And is that part of the plan? Yes. So, so part I think of. I donated some aprons. Yes, you did, Emily. Yeah. <laughs> so um, we have a big, you know, like you would have a registry list for a baby shower or a wedding, we have a big registry list of items for uh, for the kitchen. I'll here. post that in the show notes. That'd be for, great. For, the, for people that you know, are using a podcast platform right. to read. So the, I guess the, the big things that we wanted to be able to do here were have people meet and gather and celebrate. Um, there are some trainings that we'll offer from time to time. We've done some work with Ronnie Brewer and Progeny Place hosting the co-starters, the small business curriculum. Okay. Um, and so finding out, you know, how many of our neighbors are involved in some kind of a side hustle and just want to have opportunities to meet other business owners that they can potentially work together with. So we've been able to host one uh, small business pop-up retail day um, and just have tables set up for people to come in and sell their wares. Uh, it was really fun. We had to postpone another one due to the county's recent COVID guidance. Uh, looking forward to doing that again. Um, and then what we've really been able to focus on in, in the pandemic is um, we were doing a small uh, cooking workshop in January of 2020, and we had a, a neighbor actually fill in for uh, the instructor who was out sick and couldn't come in. And so one of our neighbors used to lead all of um, the CTE, the 
what used to be Votech uh, for for all of Shelby County schools. Okay, so she's um, so she ran all the cooking part of that. So she she stepped in when the instructor was out and just put on a show. Wow, for I can only imagine. Um, so, That's great. So we sort of took that and ran with it, and so now we have a small library of cooking videos. Um, that we just host on YouTube and share. And then instead of just giving away kind of random food supplies, uh, which is a, you know, a lot of what people can receive from different sources through the pandemic, we've taken those videos and paired them with uh, food distribution. So it's kind of like a Blue Apron kit where you have everything you need to make a recipe. Um, and we have a grocery store owner who's helping us get some things at a much lower cost uh, to package those things together. But that's it's kind of been our... Um, our way to work against food insecurity uh, through the pandemic and do it in a way people can drive through and be safe and not have to come in into a kitchen and cook together, but just have one person come in and kind of lead a recipe and then be able to share the recipe. Um, it's also a great way to document those recipes. You know, I think uh, a lot of us have somebody in their family who's passed away and the, you know, the pineapple cake or whatever the recipe I'm was, an Ball never the, the same. That's right. So we're, we're leading up to that. Um, That's great. Well, you know, it's just, um, it is great to have sort of a versatile community space and really, you know, a lot of neighborhoods should have them. The one I think of the most that's great in that regard is the VECA space mm-hmm. um, because, I mean, that's, I think the VECA bought that, it's an old 7-Eleven, bought it more right. than 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. and But it's just... You know, it's just where, you know, the newsletter gets published right. and where all the board and committees meet and where you can, right. you know, stop in and they have a, you know, big literature table, utility mm-hmm. assistance and having right there in Jackson. This is also very convenient. Right. Um, I'm sort of envisioning that, you know, the bulletin boards and the mm-hmm. maps and mm-hmm. and uh, I mean, this is very shiny and new, but, you know, I'm sure that's it's that's part of what it's going to be about at some point. It's just people right. can come by and get information that's or just right. to say, hi, you have your office here. Right. We, we want it to be a place that's familiar, right? There's obviously the history that people are familiar with, um, but we want, to, we want to use that familiarity to leverage relationships with new service providers and opportunities um, that, that play an important role right. uh, just in serving the community. So having, you know, in the future, having service providers be able to, to do this thing yeah, Can you just come by? I mean, that's the mm-hmm. also, I mean, this is a little bit different, but this SMA laundromat. Yeah, that's what I was just You know, just where is, yeah. um, of course, people are coming there to do laundry. But yeah, you could say every third Thursday, mm-hmm. um, you know, when is good, the Workforce Investment Network, I'm just using that as an example, is sure, going to come sure. by and you know, give people information. Mm-hmm. Or, and you mm-hmm. could have a whole calendar of, because really access to, Access to information and resources is such a challenge um, in a lot of these neighborhoods. That's right. Doing it in a familiar context, I think, really makes a big difference. For That's sure. A big reason the the Black Church has been really successful in making those connections, and so we're we're trying to build those relationships as well. But just be another another important node, I guess, to to share those resources with our neighbors. Okay. Well, Seth. So so we're you know we're running out of time. So. Um, I feel like we've covered a lot, but are there, are there other, anything else about Aussie Ball we haven't talked about that you want the listeners to know, except they need to come by and check it out? Sure. Um, I'm, I'm really interested in seeing Memphis continue to move in a direction of, of black homeownership, black business ownership, and growing black wealth. Um, and I think that will be a really important thing for us to look back on 30 years from now. What are the decisions that we made? Um, that would help us move further in that direction. Um, you've had a few few guests in the past talk about the housing trust fund. Um, I just think that's a, an important move for Memphis to make to help support uh, black ownership, whether that's through the community development corporations or other organizations that are going to promote black ownership throughout our city. So Okay. Well, that's a great note to end on because, yeah, that's just extremely important. So, well, You've been listening to Memphis Metropolis, and I've been talking to Seth Harkins from the Alsi Ball Development Corporation. So thanks for coming on the show, Seth. Absolutely, Emily, it's a pleasure. You're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. Have you checked out any of WYXR's other shows? You can see the whole program guide on our website at wyxr.org. And while you're there, please consider making a donation. 
We're a brand new station lifting up everything Memphis, and we need your support. But don't go away. Stay tuned for the rest of the show. Welcome back to Memphis Metropolis. You're listening to WYXR 91.7 FM. And for this half of the show, we're welcoming back Cole Bradley, one of our regular commentators. Cole is the editor of High Ground News and my partner in crime in publishing that esteemed weekly. And so, Cole, welcome back, first of all. Thanks for having me back. First time in the new year. Very exciting. Yeah. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. I look forward to many discussions about neighborhoods with you, no matter what what direction our paths will take, together no. and alone. <laughs> I look forward to a lot of very rewarding conversations about our mutual love of neighborhoods into yes. the 2021. Our, our mutual nerddom in this particular realm. Yeah, it's true. It is fun to nerd out. And have our little, our little petty arguments about. If things. anything's worth being a nerd about, it's Memphis. I'm just saying. I, so earlier in the program, I had on a, had a neighborhood profile about the Aussie Ball neighborhood, and I had a um, Seth Harkins, who is the executive director of the Aussie Ball Development Corporation. And Aussie Ball is a you know an interesting neighborhood. It's actually just just north of the airport, but it's one of many neighborhoods. It's in, in the larger South Memphis area. I feel like a lot of people don't know about it. And so it's the second in a series of neighborhood profiles that I want to, actually neighborhood spotlights is what I'm calling them on Memphis Metropolis. The first one was a few weeks ago with, and it was about the Heights neighborhood with Jared Myers and then this one about Aussie Ball. But I want, I feel like there's some neighborhoods that everybody has heard of. You know, everybody's heard of Orange Mound. Everyone's heard of about a lot of the neighborhoods in Midtown, even though they're, even if they're interesting. A lot of people have heard about uh, Director, but those are the neighborhoods that are more well known for the most part. So what are some, brainstorm with me for a minute about some interesting neighborhoods that are a little off the radar that I should think about to do some, I'd like to do a neighborhood spotlight every month. And I'd like to do some that are a little bit, not as well known as the ones I just mentioned earlier. So what are your thoughts about that? Well, the very first thing that came to mind was French Fort. French Fort is so cool. The history of French Fort, how it came to be, uh, the aesthetic, obviously, of French Fort. It's like stepping back in time. The architecture is incredible. They have a circular house. Pretty sure it's the only one in Memphis. Um, but really, the also the conversation around sort of built environment and how it's been isolated off from the rest of South Memphis, which has been both advantageous and not so advantageous. But French Fort comes to mind immediately. Uh, Boxtown in South Memphis, too. Well, wait, let's, the, another interesting thing about French Fort before you move on is urban renewal. I mean, yes. what was there before that was French Fort was just rebuilt on a very old and much denser neighborhood that was raised to be replaced and then wasn't. And I think it was just empty land for a long time till French Fort came along. So not only is it very interesting now for the reasons you mentioned, but it's got a a somewhat unpleasant or embarrassing for our our government, but a very interesting history. Yeah. So my understanding, and not to to give it away, because you really should do an actual show in French Fort, but my understanding is the first neighborhood in Memphis that was intentionally built to be integrated because it was built right at the time that housing was legally integrated. Neighborhood, blockbusting, and all of that was deemed illegal. was a Fair Housing Act, so 64, I think. Um, And so... Because, of you know, that's a very interesting history. It was intended to be mixed race and became very much an upper middle class black neighborhood um, and middle class black neighborhood. So it's fascinating. It's fascinating. And 
just aesthetically one of the coolest places in Memphis. Um, okay. Okay. So Boxtown. Boxtown. I think Boxtown's cool. The history of Boxtown, and you know, again, not a neighborhood that a lot of people know about in South Memphis. Well, um, that's way in that Boxtown is interesting because it's almost rural. It's it almost, is okay. It's in the. It's almost. It's not like any any place else. When you go all the way west in the city, you get to some really rural areas, almost with like a Fraser kind of geography. It's a little hillier. I agree with you. Okay, Boxtown. Yeah, it's it's almost a misspeak to call it South Memphis, huh? It's um, it's more Southwest, which brings us to Westwood. You know I love Westwood. I knew um, you were going to mention Westwood. You know, I have to mention Westwood. I just, I really love Westwood and um, it's just got a special place in my heart, in part because it's got T.O. Fuller State Park and Chuck Alyssa's there and being an anthropologist, you know, it's got my heart a bit. I used to go down there and for kicks, sort artifacts, because that's what nerds do. Um but I mean, Teo Fuller has an interesting, fascinating history. There's also a lot of environmental, um, you know, a big conversation around environmental racism and um, just structural racism in general. That's how Teo Fuller got built as the alternative to the all white Overton or the all white um, Shelby Forest. And so that's very fascinating too down there. Um, well, you know, when I was interviewing Tina Sullivan about Overton Park, the plants, and then I interviewed. Holly from Memphis Heritage about some interesting historic parks. It occurred to me that that's another would be a very interesting series because we have a lot of very interesting historical parks that people wouldn't know about really. If I mean, they wouldn't know about them necessarily if they weren't in their neighborhoods. Yeah. So, I mean, Teal Fuller, you could say, was sort of a regional park because I believe that's a state park. Yes, and, um, it is. But it, so it's a little bit more well-known, but a, a lot of people haven't been there. Okay, well, so those don't are- don't necessarily know the history of it, right? So it's fascinating anyways. Anyway, oh, so that's sure. South. Um, so that's three that are all kind of in the Southwest. So m- give me one or two more that are in different a different part of the city. So obviously, you know, North Memphis just has a ton. So there's just a bunch to pick from, right? And each one has its own little unique character and history, uh, as well as this sort of collective culture of North Memphis, uh, ownership to North Memphis, Uh, I find that to be one of the coolest things in the city is the layering of identities and who you claim and where you claim that goes on in North Memphis. Um, So I would say, you know, in North Memphis, I would actually say that tiny old new Chicago, tiny old or not new Chicago, tiny old Klondike and tiny old smoky city um, really get a lot of attention these days or get a little more attention than they used to these days. They had that big um, land bank transfer. And so I don't know if I would pick them. I think I might go more with like Hollywood Springdale, you know, Douglas is bigger, has active, you know, community um, engagement there and gets a little more attention, at least from us. We do lots of press on Douglas and high at high ground. But like Hollywood Springdale, that would be interesting. You know, Vecca too. I know you you have a little bit of a spot in your heart for Vecca. You know, I think people know the name, but they don't necessarily know much about Vecca, you know? Especially some of the northern sections of it. Exactly. Yeah. That. Uh, right, that that area around the synagogue that I think is threatened, that would be an interesting show. Okay. These the are Manassas good ideas. Area too, the Manassas area of um, of North Memphis, not quite uptown, not really new Chicago. Um, Manassas high. That's such a cool history there. Anyway. All right. Well, this is a good list. I'm going to start knocking them out and you'll have to come back on and be a commentator for them. Cause you're my go-to commentator for these neighborhood spotlights. I got you. I got you. So let's talk about a couple things that are going on at high ground. And I want to start with the still serving series, because this is something we've been working on for a couple of months that 
I'm just really excited about. So, so tell our listeners what that's all about. Yeah, so Still Serving is a series on local restaurants who are still serving uh, Memphis through the pandemic. And it was actually our video partners, Forever Ready Productions, their incredible local video production team. They've been partners with us for a number of years. We love them to death. Uh, they actually approached us with this and said, hey, we've got this idea for a series. And really what we want to do is we want to give some of these local businesses, these local restaurants who all of them are struggling right now. We want to give some of them a spotlight to say, this is who we are. This is what we're doing. We're still here. Please come and come and join us. Let us serve you. And so we're two stories in at this point. We're two videos in. Yeah. Tell us the ones we've done so far. So we did La Michoacana first, which as everyone knows is, well, hopefully everyone knows, is uh, Memphis's beloved popsicle shop. And if you don't know, you should go. It's paletas and uh, scratch-made ice cream and lots of other sort of Mexican street treats. And they have several locations throughout the city now and even have gone regional. And they're just a real Memphis success story, you know, relocated here and have really built a beautiful family-run business. And then the second one we did was uh, Sabor Carib, which is on Madison in the Edge District, the medical district, the Edge part of the medical district. And that is a Venezuelan uh, family, again, family kind of owned and operated restaurant. Uh, They relocated here from Venezuela not too terribly long ago and started this business. And I mean, I've eaten there a few times. The food's fantastic. Arepas and several other things that, I mean, you cannot go wrong. And so it's been a lot of fun. I think the next up we're looking at doing, I think we're doing a soul food restaurant next. Um, And we've got a couple, I think we're doing five in the series. We're two in and we should have them uh, the last three in the next couple of months, this month, next month. So we don't want to name many names of restaurants that are in the pipeline. No, I want it to be a surprise. Maybe next time I'm on, next time I'm on, we'll tease it up a little bit better. Okay. Um, well, and um, in addition to Forever Ready, um, Epicenter, which is a partner of High Grounds, is helping underwrite these. And I'm going to post links of these to the show notes for people that are listening on our web from our website or, or on a podcast platform. because he's, And of course, they're on our social media. Because these videos are really cute and they're really focused on how businesses are responding to, you know, in in a various ways in operating in this era. I mean, as you said, restaurants have been very hard hit. Um, you know, the city council just approved some funding for, you know, small grants for restaurant workers that are out of work, which I think would be appreciated, but probably is just scratching the surface. I just, that whole industries and the people that work in it have just been so hard hit. Yeah. And, you know, just speaking of Epicenter, I got to say, I really appreciate how often um, High Grounds partners, you know, if we can approach them and just say, hey, we got this idea and they're, they're gung ho for it. You know, Epicenter, they're all about small businesses, entrepreneurial, uh, entrepreneurial spirit and, and building the business landscape in Memphis from Memphis by Memphis. And, you know, to be able to go to them and say, hey, our film folks, they had this great idea and we know where to go. We know the restaurants to approach and will you guys come on board to, um, it's just a really special series. I like it a lot. I agree. And, and we should mention that we're selecting restaurants that are in our on the ground neighborhoods, which are the neighborhoods that where we have embedded and have relationships. So that's a priority for us is to, because we cover entrepreneurs in those restaurants, uh, in those neighborhoods. And so that's a, that's a priority for us is to continue lifting up the stories from those neighborhoods. Yeah, for sure. So if you're just joining us, you're listening to Memphis Metropolis on 91.7 FM, WYXR at Crosstown. And I'm talking to Cole Bradley, who's the editor of High Ground News and one of our regular commentators. So, Cole, you know, this the Memphis Metropolis really focuses on the built environment, which is a very broad topic. And But I wanted to talk about something that's kind of a high ground story that you and I have talked a lot about lately. 
and kind of been top of mind, which I think is just an, kind of an important community issue. And that is that another one of our partners, ACE Awareness Foundation, it, which is a new part, a new formal partner of ours. We just kicked off a series. They're actually sunsetting, which is just a fancy word for closing up shop at the end of March. So let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, it was certainly devastating news, uh, not just for us, not a selfish statement at all. My first thought was not for High Ground in the series and, oh no, what are we going to do to you know, cram as much as we can into the time we have left. My first thought was for the city. I wasn't suggesting that. No, no, I I know you weren't. You certainly weren't. But, you know, that's how I felt was my my first thought was, oh, God, you know, this is so important. And as you and I were talking about earlier, not just for Memphis being what it was before the pandemic, you know, there's no reason to – split hairs or mince words about the fact that we're a poor city. We're a a city that struggles, you know, in a lot of ways with education and ACEs and trauma and all these other things. And then you add a pandemic on top of it. Like this is the point at which, you know, kids are most likely to experience trauma now. And so it's really heartbreaking for the city. Um, But I was glad to hear that some things will continue. Well, just backing up for a second, we talked about this on a show, I guess, a couple months ago when the series was kicking off. But just remind us, you know, what ACEs are and what the what the focus of the ACE Awareness Foundation is, and then some of the programs that it supports. Yeah. So, yeah, where's your jargon buzzer? Your jargon bell? Weren't you going to do the jargon bell? Yeah, ACEs. Okay. ACEs are adverse childhood experiences. And so it's childhood traumas. Um, You know, some people define it really narrowly, like it's got to be these certain things. You know, you were a parent was killed or incarcerated, domestic violence, homelessness. Other definitions expanded a little more because who says what isn't isn't traumatic, right? But essentially household instability, community instability, financial instability, etc. and so the series Ace Awareness Foundation, they, you know, came into the city not too long ago, about five years ago or so, with the purpose was to have sort of a coordinating figure for efforts around the city that would help to prevent childhood traumas and also help children and families, parents, to address, cope with, and heal childhood trauma so that we're not continuing this cycle of just trauma after trauma in every generation, you know? And so they really are kind of this um, almost like a clearinghouse for resources and for networking connections and to just kind of be the person, the, the entity that could look at the big picture of what's happening with ACEs in the city. And so now without them, you know, there won't be that overarching entity that can kind of raise its head up and look and say, whoa, this is what's happening here and this is where resources need to be and et cetera. Um, so that's definitely a loss. Um, yeah, it seems to me like this is the equivalent of a food pantry closing in the middle of a famine. I mean, really, this is a time, I mean, Memphis is a city where so many children and adults suffer from ACEs. And but things like pandemics, um, which which has ripple effects of increased, you know, domestic violence, you know, kids not having access to, you know, regular food at schools, all increased substance abuse in families. That's just layering on top of what um, the existing conditions and we know evictions. We, We you and I have talked about that a lot. Housing insecurity brought mm-hmm. upon. And it just, it's, it would be a shame for ACE Awareness Foundation to close under any circumstances, but particularly now it's just, it's, uh, it's tragic. Yeah. When it kind of speaks to the vulnerability of the nonprofits and foundations and philanthropy work, I mean, there is no nonprofit that, that I know of that's not at risk if they lose a major significant donor. And that's what happened here. And it's, 
it's really tragic in a way, but a whole nother conversation that we certainly don't have time to get into that, you know, a change in a single funder's priorities can can bring such an important organization um, sort of grinding to a halt. It is the reality, though, um, but it's sad to see. I am glad to see, though, that so some of the places where the, the physical hubs, so to speak, or buildings where they would have parents and kids and counselors and drum circle leaders and um, baby yoga leaders and all these people come together, these physical spaces were called universal parenting places. And there will it be at least one, two that stay open or that are at least still providing some of those same services, interventions, um, you know, ways for kids and parents to connect, et cetera. So I'm glad to hear that, that it's not the work that they were supporting is not completely disappearing. I agree. And if any of our listeners are interested in this, I mean, our editorial series is going to continue through March and it's going to be a variety. We've already published a couple of articles. It's going to be a variety, a variety of articles sort of lifting up some of the work of these nonprofits, talking about the, the stigma of seeking mental health care. Um, well, I think we'll be producing one or more videos. And so that's still going to be an important body of work on our end that will live on. So uh, we'll be publishing that over the next few months. Yeah, we're really not, uh, we're not really downsizing the series much at all. We're just condensing it. So from a 12 year or a 12 month series down to like a four month, five month series, you know, but it's fine. We're still going to produce great work and there's lots to talk about. Unfortunately, there's lots to talk about in this space. Well, yeah, as we were just saying, um, the pandemic is, and maybe I said this a minute ago, but I mean, people are rightfully excited about a vaccine, but a lot of these impacts, I would guess on families and particularly children are going to endure for probably for years. For lifetimes in some cases. I mean, this is really when we talk about big events that mark people's lives, you know, when we look at later uh, younger millennials and 9-11. This will be very much akin to a 9-11 for these children who are young right now, who maybe don't really understand, but they do understand something really big is happening. And they're going to watch the world around them change. We're never going to go back to the way we were. And not completely. You know, some things have fundamentally shifted, I think, in our world and in our society. Um, and I think we've talked about before on the show here that you know, the, ram the economic ramifications are not going away for a very long time. And that's going to impact these kids, especially these kids that were already most at risk for ACEs. The economic hardship is going to hit them hardest. Well, and the support for parents. I mean, before we started recording today, you and I were talking about um, that I had read a couple of articles about how parents can talk to their children about what's happening in Washington right now. You know, depending on the, you know, if it's a young child seeing the mob on the TV, or if it's, you know, a child in junior high taking, you know, U.S. government, um, who's aware of the threat to our democracy, like, how do you as a parent, like, I would, I'm not a parent, but I can imagine I would, that would be a challenge for me. And, I'm guessing these, you know, these parenting resources, they're they're needed more than ever at a time like this. Absolutely. I mean, it feels like it's never ending, right? You know, it's first parents have to deal with explaining a pandemic to their children, and then it's explaining their school is shut down for the rest of the year and then into the next year. And then it's explaining why it is that, you know, that black men and women are dying on the news and why people are in the streets and why are the cops, you know, why is the national guard going after them and all of this other stuff. And now it's, why are people trying to assassinate our lawmakers? And, you know, it's just that, you know, think about a year ago when we said, surely this can't get any worse. And it's just one thing after the other. I cannot imagine being a parent in this last year and how many difficult conversations you never thought you were going to have to broach with your child. And it is, it's, 
yes, it's different for every age, but it's not easier, I don't think, for any age based on the parents that I know who I've spoken to, whether your kid is five or your kid is 17 and a half. Um, you know, this is a struggle to guide a young person in this world right now. I agree. I agree. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. We don't, as usual, we don't have time to solve all of the problems. So Cole Bradley, editor of High Ground News. Cole, thank you for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me again, Emily. Have a good one. Bye, listeners. You've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis airs every Monday at 1, so please tune in again next week. You can listen to past programs on our program page at wyxr.org or on memphismetropolis.com. You can also follow us and send feedback on social media. Now, stay tuned for Memphis Undercover with Nancy.